Rush into Old Navy today for this can't-miss one-day deal. 50% off all Old Navy active for the family. Get the workout wear you need at a huge 50% off one day only today. Hurry in or miss out at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1020, select styles only, excludes in-store clearance. You are locked on women's basketball. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball, special driving edition. I am your host, Howard Megdahl, somewhere just north of Baltimore on I-95, heading back from what was a truly sensational game between University of Maryland and University of Connecticut, won by Connecticut, 87-81. to 81. Uh, I am here tonight to talk about that with Gabriella Levine, our first repeat broadcast member of the podcast. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about a year in review, a remarkable 2016 in women's basketball. Gabriella Levine, how are you this evening? I'm good, I'm good. I'm a little tired out from that UConn game, UConn Maryland. What a game, Howard, right? It was remarkable, and so I was there covering the game, and I got to see the 17,950 in person, a sellout crowd. I can tell you it was a true sellout. Every seat was filled, and the sound and energy in that building was truly remarkable, especially when you consider, uh, as Gina Oriema pointed out following the game, that we are on winter break, so there was not a lot of natural student uh, participation that you would expect, but students showed up, and quite frankly, so did Maryland. Were were you, Gab, you you know I've been talking about Maryland for the past two years, really. Were were you as impressed by Maryland tonight as I was? Absolutely. I thought that they probably gave UConn the best run that we're going to see, maybe up until and through the tournament. I thought that they did a fantastic job. I thought that Brenda Freeze had them more ready than any other team I've seen, including Baylor, including Notre Dame, including Ohio State. Um, and now I know why you've been talking about them so much, Howard. They were really outstanding. That's a solid team that she has there. So I, I posed a question uh, to Brenda following the game. To me, the case for Maryland, when you're making the case that they had a chance to beat Connecticut, Uh, prior to the game starting came down to a couple of things. One was the huge advantage they have on the boards over any other team. Uh, They are second in the country in rebounding margin, second to only Baylor, but they also have someone that Baylor doesn't have in Brianna Jones. Brianna Jones is a top five in rebounding percentage in the country. Just an absolutely unstoppable force on the boards and we saw that tonight she played only 19 minutes because of foul trouble and let it be understood that foul trouble will often impact your ability to rebound not just your ability to stay in the game but she had 13 rebounds in those 19 minutes and the difference with her on the court was very significant so that's part one part two is the ability to shoot the three and that's something that Maryland does very well but they shoot in general extremely efficiently. Both Jones and Shatori Walker Kimbrough 
are among the nation's top 10 players in true shooting percentage. They get there in very different ways, but what it means is you don't just have two scorers, you have two extremely efficient scorers. And so it's worth noting tonight, Bree Jones played only 19 minutes because of foul trouble, and Chatori Walker Kimbrough was limited, did not make a three-point shot, and scored a total of only 10 points. And so, despite those two things, and then the third being depth, Maryland managed to stay within five points at halftime, despite falling behind by 19, get it back down to five in the second half, and play Connecticut very well. But I guess for me, a takeaway from this is you have a Maryland team that had star performance from essentially one of its three players. Bree Jones played extremely well, but less than half the game. Shatori Walker-Kimbrough did almost nothing of what she normally does on the offensive end. And it was really only Destiny Slocum who provided an absolute star performance. And yet Maryland nearly won this game. Uh, does it strike you as, therefore, that Maryland is among the teams we've seen play UConn, and they've played most of the top teams in the top 10 right now, the most dangerous come March? I still want to see what kind of run South Carolina will give them before saying that, but Fair. so far from the teams that we've seen, absolutely. I think that they're the biggest threat to UConn, but to counter what you said, on the flip side of all this, we can also look at it as you had all of these things happening for Maryland. You know, Tori walker Kimber goes over 3 from the three-point line. Bree Jones gets in foul trouble, plays, what, 19 minutes, like yeah. you said. Um, Destiny Slocum was the only one who really came out with a huge, huge performance, although they did have Kayla Charles come out with 18 points as well. On the flip side of that, you had UConn, I would say, equally disadvantage because you had two players in foul trouble and Gabby Williams and Nafisa Collier both going in I think to the fourth quarter with four fouls apiece and then you had Katie Samuelson. I mean that kid she has ice running through her veins (laughs) she came out with whatever kind of stomach bug whatever kind of virus she had vomits on the sideline in the first quarter and then has 23 points so UConn, I think, on the flip side, is we can also look at this as Maryland might have only lost by whatever it was, five, six points, but UConn still managed to win despite having two players in foul trouble and Katie Lou Samuelson out there playing with a stomach bug. Now, look, we also don't know, for that matter, how, however many other players on that team also might have been sick. I think that Gino kind of alluded to it in the press conference after the game, but I think that clearly something's going through the team and spreading, so it might not just have been the case with Samuelson that was sick during that game. Yeah, and and, and that was the point uh, I, I thought was really interesting when I asked him he didn't specify, but you're right. Let me play devil's advocate on those two points, because you're, you're absolutely correct about it, but the the flip side on each of them is we don't really know chicken and egg, right? We don't know, for instance, right. you know, are, are Collier and Williams always going to get into foul trouble because of how much they needed to be going up against Bree Jones, who, as Zeno said in the press conference, 
no one can defend one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, and also, yes, I, I, I want whatever illness Katie Lou Samuelson had, if it would allow me to play as well as she did in the game, which of course, sadly, it wouldn't. But the reality is, Katie Lou Samuelson, she was ill, absolutely. You're not necessarily going to get more from her than you got tonight. I, I think she finished with 23. She had 12 in the third in what proved to be the decisive quarter in this game. She made the key plays in the fourth quarter, that driving layup. Uh, there was that three out of the timeout. They were up 68-61, and Maryland had scored the first eight of the fourth quarter. UConn calls the timeout. They come out of the timeout. The play is called for Katie. Uh, to the extent that UConn plays are ever called for a person. And, uh, and Katie Lou Samuelson buries a three to put him back up 10 and take the crowd back out of it. I mean, it was just a huge moment at a point in the game where they absolutely needed it. So I don't know that, well, Katie Lou Samuelson, like 98.6 temperature Katie Lou Samuelson, not throwing up in a bucket Katie Lou Samuelson is necessarily doing even more than that which is no insult of her. It's a credit to the amazing thing she did. As Gino put it in the press conference, Katie Lou really grew up tonight. Right, right. So, you know, that, that's... I mean, I still... Yeah, go ahead. I still think, I mean, even if you, if you take Bree Jones off the bench, you give her more minutes. If you have Shatori Walker-Kimbrough hitting some three-pointers, I would still feel pretty confident in saying all things equal. I still think that UConn would have walked away with the win. Based off of what we saw, they pulled away by what, Howard? 19 points in, the third, in yeah. that third quarter. And I just thought to myself, man, you know, later on, if this is like a month from now, two months from now, and they pull away by 19 points, come March, we're not going to see them give up that 19-point lead like they did tonight. And I think that you know, I would argue that Kayla Sanderson, whatever she had going on, contributed a little bit to that. You know, Nikita Collier didn't have the best game. She, you know, got into foul trouble. They locked her down really well yeah. on the defensive end. Gabby Williams couldn't come out in the second half like she did as aggressively in the first half. So I'm not so sure all things being equal if Maryland would have walked away with the win. I think all things being equal... UConn wins this game. What I think is different yep. is that there are, and Gino talked about this after, he talked about the fact that any one thing doesn't go their way and they don't win this game. They don't have the same margin for error. Last year, any one thing could have not gone their way and they could still win the game. You know, Morgan Tuck has an off performance, doesn't really matter. You still have Brianna Stewart. You still have Mariah Jefferson. You, you know, you had these options, these ridiculous options that no other teams had. But this team this year, they didn't get very much out of Crystal Dangerfield today. They only played three minutes. I'm not sure right. this team can be great when Crystal Dangerfield is not playing big minutes for them. When they've been at their best this year, it's typically been with Crystal the one running the point. However, they have these that 14-0 run, how I always think of it is like their echoes 
of last year's team. And 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 Gino spoke of it almost as muscle memory. It's like they've been through it and they've seen so many times UConn gets the shot they need when they need to get it. They get the defensive stop they need when they need to get it. It's almost like they know no other way. And you said something on Twitter tonight about how Maryland needs to figure out how to win those games. UConn almost needs to figure out how to lose them because they haven't for a very long time. It really struck me in the fourth quarter, watching how it unfolded, watching how Maryland tried to stage that comeback. It was led in large part by Destiny Slocum. She was just incredible down the stretch. I mean, she walks onto the floor and she's open. I don't care where she is, she's open, she's shooting it. And she shoots it just so casually with this huge confidence. And I love that about her. But I really thought in that fourth quarter that Maryland's, I don't know if you can call it, you know, an inexperience with late game situations like that. But Carol Lawson made a comment during the game that they've got to hurry up and get some points on the board and some stops that they can't necessarily rush it. And I felt that they were rushing it in that fourth quarter, trying to catch up with UConn. And they just weren't setting themselves up in their offense. So you'd see Destiny Silken come down, you know, pop it from behind the arc, and then run back down, not get a stop. They just weren't really executing versus with UConn. They were executing on almost every single possession in the last six, seven minutes of that game. They were running through their sets. They were getting Kaylee Samuelson open. A huge part of that, give credit to Kia Nurse, because she slowed down that game. Yeah. Every yeah. possession, she was calling for the ball in the backcourt. She, you know, she was putting her hand up, calming everyone down, really setting everyone up in the offense. And she brought that leadership that I thought was really lacking on Maryland's side in that fourth quarter. Well, look, I, I mean, you first of all, just to your point about Destiny Slocum, there's a really interesting thing that she said following the game. She said that she has a very supportive coach and that other coaches she thinks with the mistakes she makes as a freshman would be yelling at her, would be in her face, and that Brenda said to her, treat this like you're playing on the playground. And that helped relax her in a, in a big moment. And then you saw her do just that. And, my goodness, was it fun to watch. But to your point about Kia Nurse, she was the de facto point guard tonight. Had to be. And She was great. And she, she was. Great. She was. She absolutely rose to the occasion. She was just such a Swiss Army knife of skills uh, between her ability to defend Walker Kimbrough, her ability to score when she needs to. I mean, she was responsible for a mini 7-0 run all by herself hitting a three and then uh, and then a four-point play on the following possession. So, Kia Nurse, I, I mean, it's interesting the extent to which she's been a little behind the scenes so far when you think about this UConn team. This UConn team is 12-0, and she was, let's not forget, the AAC Preseason Player of the Year. So, in the eyes of the coaches, Kia Nurse was going to be the key player, the best player on UConn. Well, coming into tonight, Katie Lou Samuelson was the leading scorer. Uh, Nafisa Colliers had bigger games scoring-wise. Crystal Dangerfield is probably the flashiest player. But it may well be that Kia Nurse was the most important player in what uh, Gino described as the most important win of the season. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. I think that's a great point. 
I think that every night they come out on the floor, she's the glue for that team. Yes. Because she, no matter what, you know what you're going to get from her. She might not come out and have a flashy 20-point game, but you know she's going to be consistent. You know she's going to be steady. She doesn't make many errors when she's out there. She doesn't turn the ball over that much, and she's relentless. She works harder than anybody else on the floor for the full 40 minutes that she's out there. Gosh. And for me, though, the X factor on that team is Gabby Williams. Yes. I mean, is there a pass that's made on the floor that she can't deflect? No matter where it is out there, I was I was looking. She only had two steals listed, but Howard, I don't think that that accounts for the amount of balls that she didn't swap out of the paint that comes her way. She She's had, just incredible she, out there. She has fundamentally taken uh, over Brianna Stewart's role last year as this rangy, incredibly long free safety who just absolutely disrupts the offense uh, on the opposing end. Uh, over and over again and and let us not lose sight of the fact she is tremendous at that she is a ridiculous passer there there was a key stretch in the fourth quarter where Gabby Williams had uh, three of four assists uh, in a span that helped UConn expand to a nine-point lead it was a remarkable thing to see that bottom line is UConn has all these two-way players all these two-way players and so they have enough people who can step up and make the shot when they need it or get the stop when they need it and they're not a team that goes 10 deep obviously but they may be a team that goes deeper than anyone else when it comes to players you can rely on at both ends of the court and, and I think that's really a legacy that extends beyond the UConn teams of the Stewart Jefferson Tuck era and really dovetails directly into what they can be this year. Yeah, I agree with that. You, you look at one through four, their core four, Kaylee Jameson, Keeneers, Gabby Williams, and Matisse Collier, I don't think that there's a better four players out there yeah. on any other team. And then you add in the fifth rotation, whether it be Crystal Dangerfield or Sonia Chong, either one of them, you're going to get, chances are you might not get a great game out of both of them on one night, but you're going to get a good game out of one of them. And Sonia Chong with that shot, it was it was like deja vu all over again. Yeah, we, we, that three-pointer that she hit at the end of the game. We cannot, we, we cannot move on without pointing that out, that she had the dagger three two years in a row to beat Maryland. Apparently that is uh, something that she saves for herself every single year, much to Maryland's consternation. But on the other hand, Maryland thinks they have a real good chance if they get a chance to meet up with UConn. And I think what they showed tonight is they do. Let, let me ask you this. As far as UConn goes, they're set to tie 90 if everything goes according to plan against South Florida although Jose Fernandez's crew may have a little something to say about that. They uh, would set the record, 91, at SMU. Uh, They'd be well into the 90s when they host South Carolina in February. South Carolina, if you want to find a team that poses threats inside and out to UConn, has bids that may be difficult for UConn to handle. 
and also tremendous perimeter scoring uh, thanks to their transfers. Do you think South Carolina will give UConn a run for their money? Yes and no. I think that they will, but I also think that this entire, we've seen a narrative this entire season. You know, it starts with, okay, Baylor's going to beat UConn, and then UConn wins, and we say, oh, just kidding, and then turns into DePaul might beat them, and Ohio State might beat them, and Texas might beat them, and Notre Dame, but then here we are, and no one's beat them. Right. So I really can't say, I, I don't think, to be perfectly honest with you, that South Carolina will beat them. And I say that because the primary argument, like you mentioned, for South Carolina is they've got the two bakes in Dubai, um, and UConn doesn't have an extreme height disadvantage. But we talked about this, Howard, before the Maryland game. I don't think that the height disadvantage is as much of a disadvantage as everyone thinks it is. Because Gabby Williams has this incredible ability to compensate for her height disadvantage. She's, what, 5'10", 5'11". And it doesn't show as much when she plays because of her athleticism. And together with Nafisa Collier, they've shown that they can come out and play against bigs and shut them down pretty well. And that was part of the reason why I wasn't so concerned about their ability to play against Bree Jones tonight. Because I I agree with what Coach Ariana said that you can't really play her one-on-one, but you can certainly frustrate her. And if I'm a big and I'm a post player inside, the last person I want to see is Gabby Williams because she's just everywhere. Yes. And she's so powerful. And it doesn't well, really matter how and that tall wingspan, you are because she can wing, jump over you. That wingspan, too. You're, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. right. And, and, and that's, that's an even more important point, what, what you just said, that she can absolutely jump over you. But that wingspan is part of what makes her that incredible free safety. It was what was so ridiculous about about Brianna Stewart in that role as well. That you're not, strictly speaking, a rim protector. You're, you're free safety slash rim protector. And you have to be athletic enough to be able to get to the rim on the defensive end when necessary. And, and you know, to Gino's credit, he's managed to either have multiple players here that are capable of doing it, or Gino and his staff have coached them into the type of players who are able to do it, or maybe more likely it's a little bit of both. But it, yeah, it, it, it's just, look, it's hard to imagine. We're, we're sitting there in, in the press room talking about, well, you know, what's the number gonna be? Is it gonna be 100, 200, 300? And, and of course, it's a ridiculous conversation, you would think, but, it seemed fairly ridiculous to get to this point. So let's talk about what it means in the larger sense that UConn is going out there and it was interesting. Doug Feinberg of the AP, friend of the show, uh, friend friend to all of us, uh, mentioned the idea that it seemed like it was a bigger deal nationally last time because UConn was going for the UCLA men's record. You wrote a piece that is going to be in the Hartford Current talking about the fact that the UConn women were not recognized here in 2016 the way they should have been. Tell me a little bit about your thought process on that and where you think UConn ought to actually be here in 2016 among the biggest sports stories of the year. Well, I think 
for me at least, in my opinion, UConn was the sports story of 2016. How can you, I just don't see how you can argue against it not being the top sports story of the year. You have a team that came out and did the unprecedented. They did what no other college basketball team, no other college program has ever done, which is win four championships in a row. And if we go back, Howard, to April, I think that there was definitely a window where they were the focus of the sports world. They definitely got the attention. And then it was like you blinked and you missed it because in a couple of months you have LeBron winning um, a title for the Cavaliers. And then you had, you know, later on the Cubs winning the World Series. I mean, even, even Villanova and their buzzer beater for the NCAA men's title seem to almost overshadow what UConn did, at least in what I've read for many end-of-the-year reviews of like, the top sports stories of the year. Well, I mean, that was for what was me, so interesting I, to me, that you you went and collected the top sports stories of the year stories from uh, around the country, and you right. found a, a large number of them that didn't even have UConn on them? Yes. So, I, you know what? If you want to Spend some time on Google. Go ahead and Google the top sports stories of 2016, and you're going to find odds and ends websites that don't even mention UConn whatsoever. And even if you go to the big outlets, you know, not to call really anyone out, but there are some big ones out there that just fail to mention UConn altogether. I mean, you could go to some of them, they'll have like a timeline, and you'll have. Um, the Villanova win and then you'll have like this gap in April where they don't mention UConn but then on April 13th they mention Kobe's 60 point final performance so it was almost as if it was a forgotten moment for some of these really really big media outlets out there and that's awful thing I can't understand I have to question whether it would be the same treatment if it was a men's team because, I mean, the fact of the matter is... Wait, 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 wait. Do, do, you, has, do you have to question that? Do you really have to question that? I don't think, no. 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 I, we don't, I mean, no. we, we can be honest Let's here. Be we real. don't have to question no, that at all. It wouldn't that. be... Oh, my God. It can, wouldn't be Can the you same imagine treatment. if a men's team with won four in a row and the men's team had a generational star who, in his freshman year, declared that he was going to win four national championships the way Brianna Stewart did, that would be... Forget it. It would, I mean, it would have been on the cover of every magazine. It would have been every headline, and LeBron James would not have been the sports person of the year. Brianna Stewart but, is Joan Namath times four. She went out and right. won four championships after declaring that she was going to do it. And, and let's be clear, I don't think either of us is taking anything away from LeBron James, who uh, is remarkable and I have dearly loved to cover and was very happy to see him do that and bring a championship to his hometown. Has been done. Championships have been won in Cleveland. Hometown heroes have won. Takes nothing away from the Chicago Cubs. Very impressive to win the World Series the way they did. Broke a long string, but 108 years, not never. You know, Frank Chance will be the first to tell you the Chicago Cubs have won the World Series before. I mean, he won't. He's dead. But the point is, it's been done before. And so, UConn 
going out and doing something that has never been done before, four national championships in four years prophesized ahead of time by the team's star, Gino Auriemma, let's not forget, winning his 11th national championship, one more than a certain Wizard of Westwood. It, it absolutely baffles me. You don't want to make it number one. I disagree, but so be it. But that there were places that left it off of a list. Uh, it, you know, I, I mean, it's no different than the thing I pointed out on Twitter last week that, and I'll call them out by name, 710 ESPN Seattle had a list of the biggest Seattle sports stories. And oh, somehow, somehow, Brianna Stewart, and, and I don't mean to keep going back to her, but I mean, how can you not? This is a person who won her fourth national championship, then went to Rio and won gold for a team that won by an average of 37 points and was a top five player in the WNBA, won Rookie of the Year and led her team to the playoffs. And this, this ESPN right. Seattle radio station did not have her on the list, did not have the storm getting her on the list, did not have them making the playoffs on the list, but they had Russell Wilson, the Seattle Seahawks quarterback, expressing support for bringing the men's team, the Seattle Supersonics, you know, back to Seattle, of building a new arena and having the NBA come there. So again, what this means is that that radio station valued more highly a football player speaking of a hypothetical men's basketball team than the actual women's basketball team receiving a transcendental, remarkable, generational talent who then went out and dominated for the Seattle Storm. Yeah, and just to echo your point, it's not to take away from what other teams and other athletes accomplish this season because it's right. my belief that when you have a big moment in sports, you should be recognized for it. LeBron James deserves that recognition. You know, everyone in Rio, Simone Biles, uh, Michael Phelps, Katie Legecki, they all deserve that recognition. The problem for me is leaving UConn out of the equation altogether. Right. And like you said, would we see that if it was a men's team? No, no. we wouldn't see it. it it's, and, it's the, I mean, women, the gonna, women are in parentheses. Right. Right. Yeah, I, and I, that sorry, was a trend ahead. that we saw that was a trend that we saw all season. Yeah. Last season. It took instead of what all of us should have been doing, which was marveling at what UConn was doing on the brink of history, on you know, the brink of a fourth consecutive national championship, we were busy debating whether it was bad for the sport. <laughs> I mean, really? That's what we were doing, and we're kind of, I mean, we're going to get back to that conversation, you know, if we haven't already, it's going to resurface pretty I, soon I, with the way that they're playing out this season. I, I, I will say this, I, I think sexism is a, is a key part of it, and, and I'm just laughing because I remember the shock I felt. I, I've covered that UConn game against Mississippi State, 98-38, to 38, and I didn't come away from that thinking, oh my God, how boring was this? I came away from that thinking, I may have seen the most perfect performance in anything I've ever covered in sports journalism. Uh, it, the, the only thing that came close to it for me, and, and it is, it's number one in my mind, was David Ortiz in the 2013 World Series, where you just could not get him out. 
I, I hit something like 571 uh, over over the course of that series, and and won the MVP. But to me, that was what we were seeing. And so I remember coming home and seeing on Twitter that the debate was about whether it was boring or not. All I can tell you is 10 feet from Gino, uh, Oriema, and Brianna Stewart, and Mariah Jefferson, and Morgan Tuck, it was not boring at all. But there's another part of it. Like you said, others should and can be recognized. It's the idea that we need to tear people down. And you even see this within the women's team. And we just ran into this just recently on Twitter. The idea that, uh, you know, we were talking about Kelsey Plum, uh, who was obviously, I think, going to be on both our lists among sports stories of the year in women's basketball. But the idea was Kelsey Plum somehow didn't represent the UConn ideal and that only UConn can play in a certain way, in a certain iconic way, and that everyone else is playing a different sport. And it really does a disservice to the rest of women's basketball to talk that way. I am very much a yes and uh, observer of the world of sports. And I think, and I think you'd agree, and I think almost anyone would agree, no one is asking for Brianna Stewart to replace LeBron James in the pantheon of stars. It's simply to make room for both. Right. I agree with that. I definitely agree with that. And when you look at what, it's just hard when you look at what Brianna Stewart did this year, which you mentioned. I mean, her fourth most outstanding player of the year award, her fourth national championship, gold in Rio, rookie of the year, second team, all WNBA. You know, first playoff appearance on a team that, you know, has missed the playoffs recently. Yep. It's just incredible what she did this year. And to sort of see her pass by like that, it was kind of eye-opening. What does it take? You know, what does it take for a female athlete, a female basketball player, to be a sports person of the year? If it's not that, then I'm not sure what it is. And you, you can't have it both ways. You can't have the idea that women's sports is an afterthought, women's basketball is an afterthought. We'll wait for the truly great to come along. And then when the truly great do come along, you do not give it the same level of treatment that you treat the, the truly great in the men's game. And by, by which I mean, if you do not have parity at that level, if the truly great in the women's game will earn you some percentage of the truly great for the men's game, then you're making it very clear that not only does the women's game not matter as much, but greatness within the women's game doesn't matter as much either. And it's problematic. And, and there are, it, it is a broad brush to paint this as universal. And there are outlets that uh, treated Brianna Stewart with reverence and should and continue to in the same way that LeBron James is deserving of that. Uh, but frankly, in the same way that Elena Deladon is deserving of that. And uh, in the same way that Villanova basketball is deserving of it, but in much the same way that not just UConn, but Maryland and Buffett McGraw's Notre Dame and, and many other programs deserve the spotlight as well. It isn't as if we have some finite amount of sports news or room. We don't live in a newspaper era anymore. 
uh, much to my sadness at some level, but you don't have X number of column inches. There's room for everybody, there's room for everything. And I think we've seen progress in 2016, but I'm ready for even more of it in 2017. I agree with you. I'm ready for it as well. Well, so to that end, rather than be part of the problem, let's be part of the solution. Let's talk about free association. What are some of the most exciting memories? You you close your eyes. Now, I won't close my eyes. I'm driving. But you, you're mystically transported into a world where you're thinking about the most impressive, most exciting parts of the 2016 women's basketball year. What's the first thing that comes to mind? The first thing that comes to mind is what we already mentioned, which is the fourth national championship that we saw of UConn. Brianna Stewart's performance as well. But outside of that, since we've already covered UConn pretty well, I would say. I would say. Um, the, WNBA, the WNBA season, to me, its entirety, the 20th season was just incredible. It was the first season that I got to cover. I've done a lot of writing in the past, not on the WNBA. And I was just continuously struck game after game, team after team that I got to interact with. It's just how amazing the league really is, how gracious the players are, how every one of them has such a unique story and I never, Howard, I never went to a game and walked away without a story. Yeah. I never went into a locker room and said, you know, I didn't really have a great conversation with this WNBA player today. I really don't have anything to write. Every single game I walked out and had a story and it wasn't just about what happened in the game. Yeah. It wasn't just about what, you know, what the final score was or what the stats were. There was always something more to it. For me, the best moment was the very beginning of the season. I covered the L.A. Spark at the New York Liberty. And I think it was late May. It was sometime like May 22nd, May 23rd at the Garden down in the city. And it was right after Candace Parker had been left off of the Olympic team. And so I remember going into the Garden and... I had my mindset that I was going to go and talk to Candace Parker about this. I was going to find a way to ask her about it. And I remember just walking in and being really nervous because I figured, this is Candace Parker. I mean, this is like the mecca of women's basketball at Madison Square Garden. How am I even going to get like within 10 feet of her in the locker room? It's going to be mobbed by media. Right. I'm not even going to get a chance to talk to her. And that wasn't the case at all. I remember going to the game, sitting there, watching the game, and going into the locker room afterward, and I was, like, the only person in there. It was, like, me and the entire L.A. Sparks team. And I just remember going up to her and asking her what was driving her this season because there was a lot of talk at the beginning of the season that she was primarily motivated by being left off of the Olympic team and that she was playing so well because of the Olympic snub, but, you know, we knew that Candace Parker is a great player regardless, and she's going to come out and have those kinds of performances with or without being left off of, of the Olympic team. And she said to me, um, I'll never forget, she said to me, like, with a dead serious look on her face, she was like, the only thing that I'm out to prove this season is that my team's capable of winning the WNBA championship. And I remember just nodding my head and saying, okay. And I believed her. 
when she said that, I was just like, you know what? They're going to win. They're going to win it this season. And I walked out of that locker room getting that sense from every player on that team. It wasn't just her. They were all on the same page, each one of them. Whether it was Candace Parker, Link Beard, Nessa Gumake, uh, Zazovich, they all had that same mindset at the very beginning of the season. And you could tell a lot about a team. I mean, Howard, you know, when you go into a locker room, if they're all on the same page. And I remember thinking that the whole season, that the LA Sparks were all on the same page. A lot of that had to do with Brian Agler and the system that he put together. But I really believe, after talking to her, that first uh, game in May, that they were going to win. I I mean, I I vouch you, because I remember that so well. And you essentially had the story of the WNBA season, and you had it in May. And you knew exactly what was going on. Oh, just quick note. Uh, we are officially passing through into Delaware, so a quick tip of the tap to Elena Deladon and Joe Biden. We are now in Delaware. Moving forward, you you absolutely had it, and I remember being skeptical because I have essentially a, a belief that uh, Maya Moore and Cheryl Reeve are uh, all-knowing and all-powerful and would figure out a way to win, and that's something I believe frankly, right up until the final minute of the WNBA season. But you absolutely captured it. And I was happy to see it for Candace Parker. She has this reputation that I believe was unjustified. Uh, it was unjustified prior to her winning the championship. I don't think the championship is the reason why she should no longer be viewed that way. If you go back the year before, uh, she managed to post an assist percentage of 41.3%, which is absurd for a point guard. But, of course, Candace Parker, strictly speaking, uh, is not a point guard. So she's simply someone who has done so many great things in this game. And hanging the no championships over her, I thought, was an unfair way to characterize her. And now you can no longer see that. So you can argue, we've talked about a lot, as this could be the year of Brianna Stewart, but in a lot of ways, it is the, the year of Candace Parker. It's also, uh, just to that end, if, as we're free associating, the year of Neka Ogwumake, who had the most efficient offensive season of anyone in WNBA history. And to be clear, no NBA player has had a more efficient shooting season than what Neko Bumake had in 2015 or in 2016. So I guess it isn't any wonder that it was a Bumake power that ended the last UConn uh, 90-win streak. And I think a Bumake power will be fascinating to see uh, in 2017. Although sadly, uh, may not be with uh, Shanae for part of the year, but. What NECA did cannot be ignored either. And that LA team, my goodness, especially now that they're bringing a lot of beard back, that is going to be a remarkable thing to see in light of the fact that they have a clear rival in Minnesota. I mean, two of the very best teams, you could argue, in the history of the league are going to play at the same time next year and just had the best WNBA finals we've ever seen. 
And to add to that, I mean, you look at who L.A. had, Candace Parker, Neko Yumke, who just have, like, a record-shattering season. For me, the player who really stood out the most each game, and even Brian Agler, I remember he told me at the beginning of the season he thought that she was the X factor on the team was Elena Beer. Yeah. Even having, like I said, even having Candace Parker and Neko Yumke, she still found a way to stand out on that team. And without her, I'm not so sure that L.A. walked away with the WNBA championship. I, that was, for I me, agree. that was the biggest play of the year. Her uh, shot in the corner, game one of the WNBA finals, right in front of her bench. That was the play of the year for me. I right love... There. And one of... Oh, sorry. I, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was just saying, I, I love every part of the new playoff format, except for the fact that the second round is best of one instead of best of three. That's the only part. Yeah. That's the only part I, I you know, that's the general consensus. I know I, I, it's not original thought that I'm having there, but uh, New York deserved better than to play for their trouble and earning the three seed. What did you earn? You earned an elimination game against Diana Taurasi and Brittany Reiner. Like, Yes, it was at home, but my goodness. Diana Taurasi was 5-0 and in road elimination games, and then she was 6-0 in road elimination games in the playoffs because she's Diana Taurasi. Uh, I, let, let's talk oh, also yeah. about the player you have most often compared to Diana Taurasi, and that's Kelsey Plum, who had a very, very good 2016 leading Washington to their first ever Final Four, and now I think she's averaging, what, 30.2 points per game uh, here here in her senior Something season. Something like that. Something low like that, yeah. Right. So, why, why is she the most Diana Taurasi player you've seen since Diana Taurasi? I don't even know if you could even really describe it, but I just, I feel like for me, I haven't seen a player come out with that kind of mentality and that kind of offensive ability. Because we talked about this a lot, Howard. Diana really isn't your typical point guard. Right. You don't really associate her with a traditional point guard. Um, and I don't think, I think that Kelsey Palm views herself as a point guard, but I'm not so sure that you would associate her with a typical point guard either. She's really a scoring point guard, but she can also pass really well. And what we saw from her in her junior season was her ability to learn how to get her teammates involved. And it just strikes me so much with the team that Diana Taurasi had, and I think it was 2003 and 2004 at UConn. Gina Ariama said something about this in the press conference recently, how the fact that they were able to win in those years wasn't just Diana alone going out every single game and hitting like 25 to 30 points, it was her ability to get every other player on the floor involved. And that's what made her so great. She never set out to just win it on her own. And I feel like we saw that from Chelsea Plum last season. She learned how to do that in her junior season. And I can't point to another player in college basketball that has that ability. You know, it's 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 absolutely. You can compare the case. her to like, right? You can compare her to a player like Kelsey Mitchell, and to put it into context, um, Coach Ariama's comment was made based off of a question about 
why Kelsey Mitchell wasn't able to beat UConn on her own. He said, you know, no team can really beat UConn. Um, no one player can beat UConn on her own. And the reason for that is you've, you've got to, the difference, I think, between a player like Kelsey Mitchell right now and Kelsey Plum is Kelsey Plum's ability to get everyone else involved. And Kelsey Mitchell, it could just be the difference of a year. We could see her do that next year. We could even see her do that later this season. But I don't think that she's gotten there quite yet. Whereas when you look at Kelsey Plum, I think that she's there already. I think that she's learned how to do that. I, I, will, I will say two mitigating factors regarding Kelsey Mitchell. One being she is dealing with a team filled with a lot of transfers. And so there is a lot right. to learn, whereas there's a fair amount of continuity. I know there's Natalie Romeo, but generally speaking, there's been a, a significant amount of continuity in Washington. And also there's no one yet at Ohio State who is Chantel Osavor. I mean, there, there's no one really anywhere right. who is Chantel Osavor. When you think about the specifics of her game, uh, the the three-point shooting, the remarkable setting of pitch on the... I mean, is she the best pick player as far as among bids on the pick and roll in the country? Probably, right? Yeah, I think I think that, I think that she might be, yeah. And so you compare... I mean, you, she certainly leads in rebounds. We and, know that. Right, so you add those two things to the rebounding, where rebounding percentage she is right there, right there among the very top in the country, uh, I believe in the top five, uh, number one. And number two, you had the fact that she is an elite passer out of the post or wherever she happens to be on the court. It's just, it's a crazy thing. It's an absolutely amazing set of skills. Uh, I, I, I welcome the coming WNBA conversation about how to fit her into a WNBA team because she is definitely not someone who looks like or plays like anyone in the lead right now but she is absolutely someone who belongs in the lead. So my only point is Kelsey Mitchell doesn't have that, unlike uh, Kelsey Plum. But your, your points beyond that are well taken, and Kelsey Plum does incredible things. Kelsey Mitchell does as well. She still needs to learn, and, and this is what WNBA talent evaluators have told me, the reason why Kelsey Mitchell was considered a better prospect or might get drafted ahead of Kelsey Plum is you hypothetically can teach Kelsey Mitchell to play the game like Kelsey Plum, but you can't teach Kelsey Plum to be as fast as Kelsey Mitchell. Whether or not that is true yeah. remains to be seen, and it will be fascinating to see because things Kelsey Mitchell or Kelsey Plum does on the floor very few have done but well one thing one thing that i would say though in response to that you look at some of the really great guards that we've seen in the wnba diana being one of them could bring up schubert being another yep. they're not the most athletic i mean they're obviously great athletes and they're professionals but they're not the fastest out there you know diana always got criticized in college for not having the best defense and and some people criticize Kelsey Plum for the same reason. But the key with the WNBA, it's, it's not so much athletic ability that translates. It's having a high basketball IQ. And both Diana Taurasi, Hubert, a player like Lindsey Whalen might not be the absolute fastest. 
but has a really high basketball IQ. And I think that you see that from Kelsey Plum. I mean, if you watch her play, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's always that she's a step ahead of everyone else. She has this incredible ability to read an offense. And sometimes when I watch Kelsey Mitchell play, I feel like she relies so much more because she has to, maybe by virtue of what you're saying, Howard, with having new players out there, having transfer players. She relies a lot more on her athletic ability. And like I said, that'll likely change within the coming year. I, but Chelsea Plumman, I think, is going to translate with her is her basketball IQ to the WNBA. Here's what I'll say about Kelsey Mitchell. I, I was really impressed. I had a chance to sit down with her for a story recently. I am really impressed by her basketball IQ. And so it, I came away from that feeling. She's, she's almost like a savant when it comes to basketball and she's watched so many players and picked up so much of her game from others but Mm -hmm. what what you're left with when you're doing it that way is an individualized game and it's not a selfish game but it's a game that is by necessity focused on what you are doing on the court and she talked about a an ability now to watch her own game film and she came later to that, watches her game film more, and while doing that, has come away from it better able to read defenses, better able to understand what her role can be. And don't forget, she was off the ball more last year because Alston was primarily playing the point for Ohio State. So this is still relatively new for her. I I guess, and, and maybe I'm guilty of the yes and that I was just talking about before, I, I am, like you, profoundly impressed by Kelsey Plum's brilliance, but not of the opinion that Kelsey Mitchell can't get there, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I and I agree with that. I think that she's going to get there. I think, like I said, I think that we're going to see it. It's just, and it could just be virtue of the fact that Kelsey Plum's just had that extra year, you know, to develop and to really get there. Um, I, that's but it, I, I agree I, with you. I, I think that she will get there. I, I find it hard to believe, and she... Yeah, I will just to be clear about it, this is not from her. She uh, she did not she said she is not thinking about the WNBA draft, anything of the sort, but it's hard to believe she won't declare if she has a chance to be one of the first few picks. And her coach Kevin McGuff said he believes she would be the number one pick whenever she came out. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine she wouldn't be among the first few picked. But let, let's let's move beyond the Kelseys and let's talk about just free associating other things that we saw in 2016. I would say, speaking of Kelsey Plum's conference, that to me, the Pac-12 and the way in which the Pac-12 has blossomed is so significant, not just for 2016, not just because they had two teams in the Final Four, not just because earlier this year they had eight in the top 25 and have a chance to beat the record for most teams for any single conference in the NCAA tournament, but because of what it says long-term about the power structure in women's college basketball to have that many power programs on the West Coast. Tell me, tell me what your impressions have been uh, as it relates to the Pac-12 here in 2016. 
I'm I'm blown away by that conference. I think that it's probably one of the most, if not the most stacked conferences that we have. And, you know, Chelsea Plum said it at the beginning of the season. She said she thinks that there's, you know, she goes into the season with a bit of a chip on her shoulder because she thinks that there's a little bit of an East Coast bias going on, and I tend to agree with her. I mean, the Pac-12, it's such a fun conference to watch. I mean, especially, like, you consider the fact that Washington, where they are right now, I think, Howard, where are they right now? Like, ranked ninth um, in the AP Top 25? They are top 10. And then you have UCLA. You also have UCLA trading spots with them at 8 or 9 or 9 or 10. It's it's just such a stacked conference that they have. And it's going to be so much fun to be able to watch an actual regular season conference play to watch those teams compete against each other. Uh, you know, UCLA, I watched them in person lose to Texas in the Sweet 16 last year. And it just struck me as a team at the time that was a year away. Well, this year, they, it just feels like their year in a fundamental way with this caveat. And this is a significant one. Jordan Canada has to play. Uh, if you watch them mm-hmm. in South Carolina... And they, they don't have a backup point guard right now uh, due to injury. When Jordan Canada is not in that game, the UCLA offense just doesn't run. Uh, Corver doesn't get the shots mm-hmm. you need her to get. Monique Billings is not found in the spots that she needs to be found. And so I, we talked about this a little bit uh, before the show. Jordan Canada may be, with, with Kelsey Plum as a possible exception, the single most important player for any team in America. And so seeing her play is just a remarkable thing. And you didn't get to see her play against Plum, I believe it was January 8th. It's going to be on ESPN, too. Yeah, it's coming up. It's on ESPN, too, too. It's going to be fantastic to see. I will also talk about, speaking of Texas, uh, Imani Boyette's 2016 should not be ignored. Uh, She had a senior season in Texas where she managed to finish in the top 10 in both rebound percentage and block percentage. And there were a lot of people who were very skeptical of that and said, well, it was just because she's six foot seven, which is not an argument that made a lot of sense to me because she continues to be six foot seven in the WNBA, making her the tallest player other than Brittany Griner. And her skills translated. I, she, you could make an argument that other than Brianna Stewart, she had the second best rookie of the year campaign with Mariah Jefferson really the only other argument there. But Imani Boyette now, if we assume that Elena Deladon will end up elsewhere and not in Chicago, suddenly she can be a featured part of that Chicago Sky offense in year two. And so Imani Boyette uh, is someone comes to mind when I think of the year 2016, just free associated. What about you? What's the next that comes to mind for you? Oh, man. Next that comes to mind. I Seattle was my favorite team to watch the whole season. Yeah. And it was just because it was like a trajectory with them, watching them last season and what was officially their rebuild year. I don't think that you could call the season that they had this year a rebuild year. At least I'm not going to call it a rebuild year. I think that they were sufficiently rebuilt by the time they got Brianna Stewart this season. 
And I just thought, man, I haven't, maybe since Candace Parker, I just haven't seen a rookie come out and have that kind of season that Stewie had this season. She was just incredible from start to finish. I mean, she had the fatigue going after the Olympics, which is to be expected, but she had an immediate impact, which we all knew that she'd have. The thing that stuck out to me the most, though, was not her offensive impact, but her defensive impact. And I wrote an article about this, about why I thought she should have been defensive player of the year. She ultimately wasn't. That's fine. But I think a lot of people questioned how she was going to come out and if she was going to be able to bang around inside with the bigs because she's not really known for that. She's not known for being like really a tough inside player. Her game's very different from that. But she still had that ability to impact the game defensively. Her shot blocking was insane. She could match up against bigs and do it really, really well. Her defensive rebounds were absolutely crazy. I mean, she was able to just elevate above everyone else. So she she was really fun to watch for Seattle this season. And then the season that Hubert had, you know, it's... I, I don't think that a guard played better than she did the entire season. And I hate to bring up age, but doing it at her age and showing that she is still able to do that is just incredibly impressive. And Jewel Lloyd as well. I mean, Jewel Lloyd was, she balled out this season. She was really, really good. And you had on that Seattle team, Hubert was first team, all WNBA. And Stewie and Jewel were both second team, all WNBA. So they had three players on their starting lineup on the all WNBA teams. So next season, I think that we're going to see big things from them. Next year could be the year of Seattle. I mean, it was no accident that the WNBA gave Seattle the 2017 All-Star Game. It feels like there's a little bit of a westward move when you think about the things that matter most in the WNBA off the court and the extent to which that may mirror what they're able to do on the court. What you pointed out about uh, Brianna Stewart, I asked her on draft day, which of your skills are going to translate immediately and which are going to take longer to get there? And uh, Stewart is not an arrogant person, but she is a matter-of-fact person. She doesn't hide from what she thinks her talent and her capabilities are, uh, as we saw when she was asked during her freshman year about how many championships she'd win. And her answer was all of them. And all of them did. So Seattle may take that <laughs> leap forward. And it'll be it'll be fascinating to see because like you said, Sue, uh, at an age that point guards do slow down, and Lindsey Wellen was terrific this year for Minnesota, but she was not, by statistical measure, the Lindsey Whalen of her prime. Uh, Sue Bird's 2016 season fits very comfortably in her prime, number one. And number two, her three-point shooting was the most accurate of her career. And so if that is the Sue Bird that we are seeing in 2017, Seattle will be fascinating indeed. So I, I agree with you that they are absolutely fascinating. I will talk about a 2016 farewell. Uh, that I am still sad about, and that is Tamika Catchings. Tamika Catchings, who uh, I have argued and will continue to argue, has a relatively easy claim 
on the best player in WNBA history. Uh, if you go by uh, win, win shares, she is not just better than anyone in the history of the league, she is 20% better than anyone in the history of the league, Lauren Jackson being second. And to me, DeCatchins was someone who managed, even in her age 37 season, to be top 10 in the league in player efficiency rating. It, it, this is, and yet was not a high volume shooter. Everything Tamika Catchings did made her teams great. And when I hear people talk about Diana Tarazi made her teams better, it's absolutely true. But the same must be said for Tamika Catchings, who is an easy Hall of Famer and inner circle all time WNBA player. Yeah, and to add to that, I never got a chance, this is my one regret this whole season, I never got a chance to interview Tamika Ketchings, but I bumped into her like three or four times covering different games, and each time I just had conversations with her in passing, and what an outstanding person she is. She was just incredible. It didn't matter, and I, I would watch her talk to all these people, and it didn't matter who it was, she greeted everyone like she knew them for 10 years. Yes. She was just the kindest person and just an incredibly, incredibly giving person. So, and on that note, I also have to bring up Swing Cash. Oh, God, yes. Um, we both, we were both there, right, at the Garden for yep. her last game, I think it was, against Tina. Yep. Um, and that, that, for me, that hurt watching her last game because I've watched her play. My dad and I used to go to all those games at UConn and watch all of them. And to see her retire, I mean, I'm glad, though, I, I feel like she went out on her terms um, in the way that she wanted to. I'm sure that, obviously, she would have preferred that New York made it further in the playoffs than they did. But she just had, she had one game, and I can't remember how many points she scored, but it was at the Garden. It was just like a vintage twin game, and I was able to see it live. I think she had, like, something like 14, 16 points, and... I want to say she almost even won the game for them. I know that they did win. And it was just like the vintage swing night to see. And I was really glad that I got to see that. Well, and, and let's not forget, the swing sticking around until 2016 meant she got to be part of the massive off-the-court movement, political movement, by WNBA players and played a, a very important role in that. She and Tamika Catchings had a joint meeting on the floor following the Fever Liberty game in July that led directly to the post-game protests. And Swin, who is just one of the most wonderful interviews you're ever going to hear, has fascinating things to say about the world. Basketball is really just a small slice of what Swin Cash brings to the table in terms of knowledge and in terms of her ability to communicate. Uh, Having her be part of that, having Tamika Catchings be part of that, was really important. And I, I think allowed the WNBA to be a greater part of the conversation than perhaps it otherwise would have been. So being able to see that, being able to see the WNBA almost act as the precursor for Colin Kaepernick and, and the NBA was very significant. Uh, because ultimately the NBA was out of season. The NFL was out of season. 
it was on the WNBA to get this right. And they did. And they set the tone for what I think is a fundamental change in the way athletes relate to politics in this country. I agree with that. That blew me away this season covering the league. That was something else that I took away is that they all, all of the players were really on the same page um, on political and social issues. They were all willing to be vocal. And that's, sometimes it's hard for athletes to do that. Sometimes athletes don't want to stray from, you know, just going out there and playing their game. Um, but the WNBA really proves that if there's any league that's willing to be vocal, it's women's basketball. And that was across the board. I, across the board, you know, going back to Brianna Stewart's um, acceptance speech at the SBs when she yes. called for equal media coverage, I went to a Connecticut Sun game just after that, and in passing, I asked a few players, you know, do you agree with what Stewie said? And every single one of them, like, had a speech of their own about why they did agree with what Stewie said. And that that was something that really struck me, like I said, about the league this season, that they were all on the same page and all so incredibly vocal and willing to address them. Yeah, I mean, you, you told that story about Candace Parker. I couldn't help but laugh because I, I, I had a similar experience uh, a couple years ago was doing a story about the Minnesota Lynx and so I approached it the way I would approach the NBA and so I went under the assumption she probably won't talk pregame she's Maya Moore the great Maya Moore so I went up to Ashley Carlson who's a terrific PR person for the Lynx and I said oh you know is Maya speaking pregame and uh, sure you know well when is Maya speaking pregame she can speak right now. You want her? She's right over there. And I, so I went over to Maya Moore. And she said, oh, what do you need? And, you know, took all the time you could ever ask. And it's no different with Maya any other time you get her, whether it's pregame, whether it's at a shoot-around. And it is a mixture of happiness and sadness for me. As someone who covers the lead, I am awfully happy that I get to talk to the players whenever I want to, that I don't feel rushed, that we can get deeper into things, that the players are not as on the spot as they would be, let's say, in a group of 50 people answering questions. But the other side of it is, absolutely, Candace Parker ought to have a huge crowd around her. Maya Moore ought to have a huge crowd around her. It shouldn't have been so simple for me to sit there and watch Cheryl Reeve, who, you know, I will I will say is the Pat Summit of our time. Uh, to everyone who said when Pat Summit passed, gee, I wish I'd gotten the chance to cover her. What what I said to them was, go cover Cheryl Reeve. And I'm sitting there at her shoot around when they came to Columbia preseason uh, in in the WNBA this year, and it was just me. And that, that just shouldn't have been. There were remarkable lessons to be learned. And maybe maybe that's something we can end on, Howard, on that note about that, because I felt the same way the whole season covering the WNBA. And it was like, like just like you said, it was a mix of, I'm really happy that there's not that many people here because that gives me more time right. to talk to these players and hear their stories. But... Every single game, I walked away saying to myself, really? 
there's not more people here. I mean, Diana Taurasi is in Madison Square Garden right now. Do you know right. who she is? And there's not a line of people to talk to her. It's just me on the sidelines right now. And that's not to say, that's not to take away from the fact that I met and interacted with some really, really terrific writers this season. They're out there. There are people who are committed, who go to every single game. Yes. But there's not enough of them. Yep. And there should be more. And I walked away every single game saying these players deserve better. They deserve more coverage. They deserve the same level of consistency that the NBA gets every single game. The most, the biggest turnout that I saw of every game was for USA Basketball, and that was great. But I said to myself, why aren't all these people here every single night at the Garden covering the New York Liberty or coming to town when Candace Parker rolls in or when Diana Taurasi comes? I had the same experience, like I said, with Candace Parker going into the locker room. No one was there. Talking to Diana Taurasi on the sidelines. There's no one else there pre-game. It, it shouldn't be that way. And it really shouldn't. And can you imagine not wanting to talk to Diana Taurasi or or Cheryl Reeve? Like, I, I, I mean, that's the other part of it is these these interviews are remarkable. And, and who knows? Maybe maybe that will continue to get bigger and maybe the model of having 50 people around LeBron James isn't even necessarily the model you want to have. Maybe the model you want to have is telling more and better stories by uh, having fewer people, being, making sure that there are bigger outlets that are doing it on a consistent basis. But it's certainly something that I feel very strongly about. I know you do as well. And my goodness, if you think about all the stories we didn't even touch on here in tonight's jumbo-sized episode, looking back at 2016, there are going to be just as many, if not more, in 2017. So that is that. So I'll, I'll let's leave on that note. What is the number one story you are most looking forward to in 2017? Oh man, um, I'm gonna go with. I'm not going to go with UConn. I'm, not, I'm going to shock the masses. I'm not going to go with UConn, and I'm going to go with looking forward to see what Seattle can do in the WNBA next season. I will choose seeing Elena Deladon on her new team. I see that as fundamentally the WNBA's Kevin Durant moment. And so it is my belief that that will be utterly fascinating we have never seen a player of Deladon's caliber change teams at this point in her career. I think the closest you're going to find is either Sylvia Fowles or Lindsey Whalen. And so that is the thing I am most excited to see. That's a good choice. I agree with that one, too. Well, I am now passing... The Wells Fargo Center, where it is my hope someday there will be a Philadelphia WNBA team. And, of course, Philadelphia being the hometown of the great Don Staley. So it's a good place for us to end. Uh, Gabrielle Levine, remarkable chronicler of basketball stories. Uh, how can people follow your work? You can get me on Twitter at GabRose1. There's an underscore in there, yes? Yes, there's an underscore, you're right. Yeah, underscore, Rose 1. Make sure we promote correctly. Excellent. Well, 
Gabrielle Levine, it is always fun to talk to you. Uh, I look forward to doing it many times in the years to come. And thank you all for listening this year. It's been an absolute pleasure. We'll have more to come. We've been doing these about twice a week. Uh, we will do twice a week as well in 2017 and we'll up it as big news happens as well. Reminder, you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB. You can like us on Facebook, Locked On Women's Basketball, or you can subscribe using your podcast of choice, whether it's iTunes or something else. Uh, my name is Howard Magdal, wishing you a very happy new year, and we'll see you in 2017.